everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this Vetfolio Voice podcast episode sponsored in part by Zoetis. I'm your host, Dr. Cassie, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Sharon Campbell about the importance of antimicrobial stewardship. I don't think I realized until I was out of vet school the enormous responsibility that comes with being able to prescribe antibiotics. Our decisions regarding antibiotic use today will have lasting impacts for years to come. But as much as we may understand the why of judicious antibiotic use, the how can be a bit more challenging. How do we ensure as individuals and as members of veterinary practices that we're doing all that we can to use antimicrobial drugs appropriately? With that question in mind, Zoetis has developed a five-pillar approach to antimicrobial stewardship. And here to talk to us about it in more detail is my guest, Dr. Sharon Campbell. Dr. Campbell received her DVM degree from the University of Wisconsin and completed a residency in small animal internal medicine, as well as a master's degree in veterinary medicine at Virginia, Maryland Regional College of Veterinary Medicine. After completing her residency, Dr. Campbell worked as a clinical instructor at the University of Tennessee, followed by a position at a private referral hospital where she worked for five years before joining Zoetis. Since joining Zoetis, Dr. Campbell has held many different positions and is currently the medical affairs lead for anti-infectives, pain, anesthesia, sedation, and behavior portfolio of drugs. She's developed the Companion Animal Antimicrobial Stewardship Program for Zoetis that we're here to discuss today. Outside of work, Dr. Campbell enjoys yoga, walking, gardening, and making sure Siegfried the cat and Huckleberry the dog are happy and healthy. As a matter of fact, Siegfried is excited about antimicrobial stewardship as well and decided to join us and offer his two cents during our recording, so you may get to listen to his expert input once or twice throughout the podcast. All right, enjoy. Let's jump in. We've got Dr. Sharon Campbell joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Campbell, for being here. Happy to be here, Dr. Cassie. So we're here to talk about antimicrobial stewardship today. Let's start at the very beginning. What is antimicrobial stewardship? That's a really good place to start. And according to the AVMA, antimicrobial stewardship refers to the actions veterinarians take individually and as a profession to preserve the effectiveness and availability of antimicrobial drugs through conscientious oversight and responsible medical decision-making while safeguarding animal, public, and environmental health. So in other words, using antimicrobial drugs effectively while not putting animals at risk or the public at risk. Sure. And that's a great explanation. And I feel like it kind of speaks for itself in terms of this next question. But if you could just kind of, you know, in your own words, tell us why is antimicrobial stewardship important? It all comes down to a recent rise in resistant bacteria reported in companion animals. By recent, I mean, since the early 2000s. We started to see methicillin-resistant staph intermediates, as it was called back then. Now we call it staph pseudointermediates. There is a similar concern in human health. So this really is a one health problem. Basically, this is due to a widespread and in many cases indiscriminate use of antibiotics, which has led to an increase in the selection of resistant bacteria. In human health, it's estimated that nearly 50% of the antibiotics used are used needlessly. In other words, antibiotics are prescribed when there is not a bacterial infection. 
Although large-scale studies have not been conducted to determine the percent of companion animal cases um, where antibiotics have been prescribed needlessly, the same is likely true. The concern is, and, and this is really a big concern, the concern is, is that if we do not take steps to responsibly prescribe antibiotics, then we may reach a time where the antibiotics that we have today are no longer effective. Additionally, we need to consider that there are very few new antibiotics being developed. Therefore, we have to preserve what we have. As much as antibiotics can save lives, it's up to us as veterinarians to preserve the lifespan of the antibiotics that we have at our disposal. And that can be done by implementing an antimicrobial stewardship program. So that that's a really scary statistic to say 50% of the time. Um, and I got like a little pit in my stomach that went, oh my gosh, I'm sure I'm part of that statistic. So this is a huge responsibility and very, very important. Where do we begin when we're considering as a clinic starting an antimicrobial stewardship program? Well, Zoetis is providing a five-step or a five-pillar approach to antimicrobial stewardship. The five pillars include commitment, prevention, detection, optimizing use, and surveillance. Across those five pillars, we provide the information and tools for a clinic to implement the program and educate the staff on AMS, as well as to facilitate, motivate, and empower each team member to adopt these new antimicrobial stewardship policies and procedures. We will also provide tools to measure the effect of actions taken so the clinic can adjust policies and procedures accordingly. Absolutely. So if we, you, you talked about the five pillars, if we take those pillars, kind of each one individually, let's start at the beginning. What's meant by commitment? Yeah, commitment is really where the antimicrobial stewardship program starts. Typically, the clinic will want to identify one or two champions to lead the program. The champion should be individuals with a strong interest in or are passionate about antimicrobial stewardship. We really recommend having two champions, one from the veterinary staff and one from the technician slash nurse staff, uh, as each of these have different sets of strength, um, areas of expertise and areas of interest. And additionally, they can be the spokesperson or leader for the team that they represent. Another benefit of having two champions is that if one leaves a practice for a short period of time or for whatever reason, the program, the program can continue while a replacement is being found. This allows for continuity and it's not based on just one person leading the program. Sure. And I love the idea of working together as a team, you know, from the veterinary staff and the technician slash nursing staff, because I think you're exactly right. Those two sets of combined ideas will probably get the most benefit. So we're starting with our champions. Are there any other parts of the commitment part of the antimicrobial stewardship? Once the champions identify, they can develop an antimicrobial stewardship team. Team members should include someone from management to be your advocate, but also two to three other staff members that either have an interest or expertise in antimicrobial stewardship, infectious diseases, infection control, pharmacology, et cetera. The team members will then meet regularly to assess the clinic's current antimicrobial practices and other areas such as, what is the general understanding of antimicrobial stewardship and principles of resistance across the clinic? Or 
Are there set standards for prescribing antibiotics for various infectious diseases or infection control measures? And how well are those being followed? Another area that you might want to assess is what is the current rate of resistant pathogens for skin infections, urinary tract infections, et cetera? And are there some factors that can be identified that may have predisposed to resistance in these particular areas? Another place where you could assess is identify where the clinic's wellness program is, and is there places where this new antimicrobial stewardship program will align with an already established wellness program. And this will make adoption of the antimicrobial stewardship program much easier because you've got these two different programs aligning together. Sure, sure. So you've got your team together, you've done your assessment, where do you go next? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And so once an assessment is completed, the team decides where to actually begin the antimicrobial stewardship program. They need to get buy-in from upper management to provide resources. Typically, very few monetary resources are needed to establish an antimicrobial stewardship program. But what the big resource is going to be is allowing the time for all of the staff to be trained on whatever new protocols or procedures are being implemented with this new antimicrobial stewardship program. And so, um, and then also just consider too that time will need to be afforded to the team members to actually develop the program because there's going to be some work and these team members are going to have to be given some time off from clinic duty to spend time putting the, the, the program together. The team will then determine how to move forward, how to measure success and establish goals and outcomes. And then they will start developing the materials needed to get the program started. I love the idea of materials, visuals, handouts, brochures. I love all those things. What kind of materials are you referring to? So it really starts off with a letter to the staff announcing the antimicrobial stewardship program and clearly describing the procedures that will be initiated and expectations of the staff. Other materials include protocols, SOPs that outline the procedure, and then of course you're gonna have to have training materials. It's good also to have some communication materials for the clients so that they understand if in the past when their cat has been brought in for upper respiratory infection due to herpes, and typically that cat may have prescribed antibiotics, you're not doing that anymore. So it helps your clients understand that you've made a change in how you're prescribing antibiotics and you're being more responsible about it. The other thing that I like and I think is going to be very helpful is to have signage that you can place around the clinic to remind the team of the commitment and steps that are being taken. And the signage is something that you can develop yourself, but there's lots of resources out there. The CDC provides some signage. AVMA provides signage. University of Minnesota has some different signs that you can download from their website and actually put your clinic name on it. So you don't have to feel like you're in this alone. There's lots of resources out there for you. Wonderful. And it's always nice to kind of have those visual reminders, both as, you know, conversation starters with clients, but then also to kind of remind us maybe when we're tempted to reach for antibiotics in situations where we perhaps shouldn't, just that reminder of that commitment to the program. Yes, I agree. So what about the next pillar, prevention? What's covered under the pillar of prevention? So prevention actually has two big buckets. One is infection control. 
What can we do within the clinic to prevent spread of infectious diseases from patient to patient and from patient to person? And that includes nosocomial or hospital-acquired infections as well as zoonotic infections. This can include how and when to wash hands. Now, this may seem like a really simple thing, but FACABA, the Federation of Companion Animal Veterinary Association, has an excellent chart that describes a proper way to clean and disinfect hands. And then what I really like about this chart is it includes a photo that highlights the part of the hands that are most often missed during routine hand washing. And I can tell you when I saw that chart, I completely changed the way I wash my hands because they highlight that oftentimes you miss your fingertips or the sides of your hands. And now when I wash my hands, I have to say I do a much more thorough job just because of that one little poster itself. Infection control can also include how and when to identify patients that harbor infectious diseases, how to handle those patients, and how to clean and disinfect areas and instruments that are exposed to the patient after the patient has moved on. Appropriate use of, we've heard it all year long, PPEs, personal protective equipment, also establishing patient flow through the clinic, air handling, and then keeping out unwanted visitors such as rats, flies, mosquitoes, etc. These are all components of prevention. Even handling patients that are tick and flea infested fall under infection control. Having a plan of what to do when these patients come into your clinic, this is really important to consider. Sure, not taking like a one size fits all approach, but you know, tailoring to what you're seeing specifically. Exactly. And having contingency plans for whatever might come up. Absolutely. You mentioned that there were were two buckets under the pillar of prevention. What's the other bucket? So the other bucket is preventative health or wellness. Um, and, And what better way to reduce use of antibiotics than prevent a patient from ever getting a bacterial infection to begin with, right? I mean, you don't need antibiotics at all. Therefore, prevention includes anything that we can do to maximize each individual patient's health, including proper diet and exercise, appropriate vaccine and parasiticide protocols, regular examinations, blood works to make early diagnosis of disease or conditions such as diabetes or Cushing disease that can impair the pet's immune system, and even dental cleaning. And dental cleaning can be an important part of prevention. Having hospital standards on preventive care and communicating the importance of compliance and adherence to these standards to your pet owners owners, is a critical part of the wellness program, as well as your antimicrobial stewardship program. Sure. You know, I oftentimes think of dentals in terms of reducing the bacterial load, but I actually didn't have like Cushing's and diabetes at top of mind in terms of preventing infections. I think that's a really good point as far as how important things like our blood work and our dental and of course, regular exams are in antimicrobial stewardship. For sure. I think that that is is sometimes overlooked, but it is a critical part of antimicrobial stewardship. Sure. Sure. So moving on to the next pillar, detection, it kind of describes itself in the name. It's focused on identifying the organism that's causing the infection. Can you give us some more details on the detection pillar? Absolutely. One of the basic principles of antimicrobial stewardship is to promote laboratory testing to determine if one, bacteria are present, and two, to aid in the selection of appropriate antimicrobials. 
ultimately, before prescribing an antibiotic, you want to make sure you know what you're treating by knowing the site of infection, how to take samples appropriately, evaluating those samples when possible in the clinic are really important to detecting what's there. Things that you can do in the clinic include gram stains, reviewing cytology from skin scrapings or aspirates, evaluating urine sediment and other clinical samples to again, determine if a bacterial is present or not. Of course, you will submit those samples to your reference laboratory for evaluation also. And this could include the cytology portion of it, as well as appropriate tests for vector-borne diseases, culture and sensitivities, et cetera. Importantly, when submitting samples for culture and sensitivity, you want to ensure that the laboratory that you're using is following the Clinical Laboratory Standards Institute guidelines or the CLSI guidelines. The final step in detection is to interpret the tests in light of the patient and make sure that the presenting signs are in line with what the test results are telling you. So for example, if you had a urine sample and you spun it down and you look at the sediment before you sent it off for culture and sensitivity, and it was very clear that there were bacteria present and you took the sample through cystocentesis, and then you get a culture and sensitivity back that says there was no bacterial growth. This will institute a call to the lab to find out where there was a disconnect. Additionally, if you did a skin scraping and you saw that it was loaded with yeast and you didn't see any bacteria, and then the culture and sensitivity results come back as some kind of bizarre type of bacteria like serratia, that's probably not the underlying cause. You know it's probably yeast, but again, this would make you want to call the laboratory and talk about those results because what you're seeing is not necessarily lining up with what the laboratory results are telling you. I think those are really good reminders that we all need one, you know, not to cut corners in terms of diagnostics, make sure that you do the appropriate tests to identify what organism you're dealing with. But even more importantly, like you said, to make sure that what you're seeing clinically lines up with the results. I think it it's probably easy to say, oh, well, this is what the lab says it is. Let's go after that. And important to come back and say, well, hold on, that doesn't quite make sense with what's what I'm seeing here. That, that is absolutely true. So the next pillar is optimizing use of antibiotics, which another term that we commonly hear is judicious use of antibiotics. What aspects of prescribing antibiotics are important to consider? Right. So I think that now we have committed to antimicrobial stewardship. We have a prevention program that's going to keep our patients healthy. We have a detection program that's going to allow us to use the exact antibiotic antimicrobial that we want to use. And now we need to focus on how we're going to use that antimicrobial most appropriately. And so what we want to consider is patient factors such as the location of the infection. Is it acute, recurrent, or chronic infection? What is the overall health of that patient? Do they have some underlying disease? Is their immune status compromised? Are they on concurrent medications? And then do they have any history of any reaction or intolerances of antibiotics from previous times that they've had an infection and been placed on an antibiotic? You also want to consider if that antibiotic is going to be used topically or systemically. So if you think about a very focal 
superficial bacteria. Oftentimes you don't need to put those dogs or cats on antimicrobials. You can simply treat those with a topical antibiotic. And that actually is going to give you the best chance for, for resolving that particular infection. You also wanna consider, are you going to use it empirically? Are you going, or are you going to submit a culture and sensitivity? And then once you've chosen your antibiotic, you need to think about the dosage, the dosing interval, and importantly, the duration of treatment. If antimicrobial treatment is started before you get a culture and sensitivity results and you get your, your culture and sensitivity results back, then is de-escalation appropriate? And what do we mean by that? Well, say you started the dog on enrofloxacin and your culture and sensitivity comes back and says that, well, really amoxicillin is going to be effective against this particular bacterial infection. Then you can stop the enrofloxacin and initiate amoxicillin because that is a more narrow spectrum antibiotic that's still gonna be effective for that particular infection. You also want to follow guidelines that have been established for the different types of bacterial infections. And we have several. We have one for bacterial skin infections, bacterial urinary tract infections, and then respiratory tract infections in both the dog and the cat. And once you have looked and reviewed these guidelines, you want to establish protocols for your staff to utilize in the clinic. For instance, if you have an upper respiratory tract infection in cats that are typically of viral origin, no antibiotics are needed unless some additional evidence shows you that there is a bacterial infection there. Similarly, most feline lower urinary tract diseases are related to stress and not due to bacteria. Your internal protocol should also describe what is the expected treatment response time and when should you schedule a recheck once the antimicrobial treatment has been started. Sure, that therapeutic endpoint. Two concepts that I've heard about when it comes to antimicrobial use are watchful waiting and antibiotic timeouts. What are these and when would you implement them? Yeah, Cassie, these are two really important concepts. The first, watchful waiting, is used to describe a situation where you think that a bacterial infection is unlikely and or you're waiting for test results, but Again, it's unlikely that this is going to be a bacterial infection. An example of this would be a dog with diarrhea. Research has shown that for non-hemorrhagic diarrhea in dogs, those patients treated with antibiotics had a similar duration of disease as dogs that were not treated with antibiotics. So in this case, perhaps you wanna withhold the antibiotics, switch the dog to a bland diet and monitor for two to three days to see if the diarrhea resolves without the need for antibiotics. If after two or three diet days, the dog continues with diarrhea, then perhaps you want to consider using an antibiotic. But your, your, your suspicion is that it's not a bacterial infection, but you're not quite sure. So you're going to use watchful waiting before you implement use of that antibiotic. On the other hand, antibiotic timeout is typically used in hospitalized patients when you're, again, unsure if the patient has a bacterial infection. You start your antibiotic anyway, but you're waiting for the test results. Once you get those initial test results back and they come back as negative for bacterial growth, then you can take an antibiotic time out and you can consider doing stopping those antibiotics for 48 hours 
on observing the patient. If additional tests come back confirming a bacterial infection, then you can begin the patient on antibiotics again. Also, if after your time out, you see that the patient's sign returns or the patient gets worse, then you can resume your antibiotics. Preferably, the use of those antibiotics will be based on a culture and sensitivity result. Sure, sure. Um, our last pillar is surveillance. And I think that might be one where the veterinary profession is the least familiar. What does surveillance entail? Surveillance can be done at the clinic level, regional, national, or global level. For our discussion today, we'll focus on the clinic level. And this can include identifying areas or practice that lead to development of nosocomial or hospitalized acquired infections. Veterinarians will also want to work with their laboratory to develop an antibiogram for different types of infections to determine antimicrobial resistance. So surveillance can help you determine and figure out where your nosocomial infections are coming from, but they also can help you determine what kind of antimicrobial resistance you're seeing within your practice. We don't have time today to go into a lot of details on how to develop an antibiogram for your clinic. However, listed in the references that you can download from this podcast is a recent article by Frey et al. on developing an antibiogram in a veterinary practice. Also, CSLI, the Clinical Standards Laboratory Institute, has recommendations for antibiogram development. However, antibiograms can be useful to identify resistant patterns, adjust antimicrobial prescribing habits, and can be used to measure the impact of your antimicrobial stewardship program. When conducted appropriately, antibiograms can help with empirical selection of antibiotics, but they should be location-specific, which means should be specific to the location of where the infection is occurring, and also should be current since resistance patterns will likely change over time. Being aware of regional, national, and global trends will also make us better stewards. So implementing this antimicrobial stewardship program, I mean, it's a big deal. There's a lot involved. Do you have any tips for veterinarians who are considering adopting a program for their clinic? Sure. It can be overwhelming if you look at it as trying to start everything all at once and only one person doing it. But it's really important that, first of all, you get commitment from the entire team. And then realize that one person cannot implement the program, nor should you expect to initiate all components of the program at once. The key here is to start small. Talk about baby steps. You want to determine the area of the antimicrobial stewardship program that you think will have the most impact on your clinic. For example, if you notice that there has been an increase in resistant E. coli bacteria from your urinary tract culture and sensitivities, maybe you start by assessing current practices regarding the detection and selection of antibiotics for urinary tract infections and develop your program there. On the other hand, if you notice that you have an increase in post-operative infection, focusing your infection protection or antimicrobial stewardship program on what you're doing perioperatively may be where you want to start. It really is very clinic dependent. Once you decide where you're going to start, then you develop your protocols 
You also want to think about enlisting advice of antimicrobial stewardship or infection control experts. And then also, again, listed at the end of this program that you can download are many resources that will help you build your program. You want to ensure that you allow time to educate and train your team. You want to follow up regularly. You want to allow the team to provide some input and feedback because you want to know how things are going from their perspective. You also want to remeasure the response and share those results with the staff so that they can see the progress that has been made from all the work that you've done, but also all the work that the team has done. Once you reach the goal for your first area that you've identified as your area of focus for your antimicrobial stewardship program, then first of all, you wanna take the time to celebrate your success. That's really important. But then after you celebrated your success, your work's not done. Right. So then you want to look at the next area for improvement and develop the program around that. And that's going to be your next milestone. And then you just like it is, like I said before, it's baby steps. You just work away at this um, step by step until you eventually have this very comprehensive antimicrobial stewardship program and realize, again, that it's not just one person, it's the whole team, but also realize that this is going to take some time. So you need to have that dedication from the team, upper management, and, and really, I think, importantly, take the time to train the staff. Sure, sure. You mentioned resources in your explanation there. What kind of resources are available for veterinary clinics? There are multiple resources, and you can find guidelines from ISCAD specifically. Additionally, AVMA, CDC, FACAVA also provide multiple resources. Zoetis has an antimicrobial stewardship handbook, which provides many of the tools that you'll need to start and implement your program. And they also, the University of Minnesota has some of these resources also. Again, um, after this podcast, there'll be a list of resources that you can download and then look into to help you develop your antimicrobial stewardship program. Well, Dr. Campbell, I think that this is probably one of the most important topics in medicine as a whole. You know, you mentioned it's a one health problem. So something we definitely need to be talking about. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us today and um, tell us about Zoetis' program and just remind us of the importance of antimicrobial stewardship. Oh, thank you, Cassie, for giving me the time to talk about this. Thank you again, Dr. Campbell, for being with us today. And thank you to Zoetis for sponsoring this event. To find more podcasts like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.